Hello, this is Daryl Castle with today's Castle Report. Today is Friday, November 1st, 2019. There's so many things we could talk about today because so many events are happening in our world currently. But instead, we journey back 90 years into history. We look at the great crash on its 90th anniversary in the hope that by examining the past and its great events, we can learn something about the present and the great events of the future. Yes, it's been 90 years as of October since the stock market crashed, sending the U.S. economy into depression. So what have we learned? That is the question for today. In August of 1929, investors in the stock market were having the time of their lives, much like they are today, but just two months later. They were jumping to their desks from Wall Street high-rises. The stock market was indeed flying high in August 1929, fueled by the Federal Reserve's low interest rates, easy money policies of the time, two successive administrations, those of Harding and Coolidge, were in favor of the boom, in favor of creating the boom. They wanted it to continue to keep the roaring 20s going on into the 30s, but the Fed reversed itself and began to let the air out of the financial balloon by gradually raising rates. If all this sounds eerily familiar to you, it does to me too. That's why we discuss it today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average reached an all-time high on September 3, 1929, 381.17, but there were plenty of warning signs of what was coming if one just looked for them. The Dow drifted up a little, down a little, over the next six weeks, finally in the last week of October, it crashed with one massive sell-off after another. Ordinary investors joined the professionals and sold what they could of their portfolios, but many lost everything they had worked all their lives to accumulate. The market did not reach bottom until July of 1932 when it hit a low of 41, representing just 11% of its high today. The market stands at 27,071.42, a massive difference, even considering inflation, but it did not fully recover its pre-crash level until 1952, so it took a world war plus a quarter of a century to regain the level it had held in August of 1929. The Great Crash was precipitated by and exacerbated by a series of government blunders that continued to make a bad situation a lot worse, the Fed shifted rates up and down. Taxes were increased. Prices fixed. Gold was seized. Many other mistakes were made since the prices received by farmers for their products had cratered. The government assumed that prices fell because of oversupply. So the government supervised the destruction of agricultural products, including thousands of animals. This government intervention Perhaps was done with good intention, but it had the effect of stifling investment, boosting unemployment. So the situation for the average American went from bad to worse. In the first four years, that being 1929 to 1933, the production of factories and mines fell by more than one half. Real disposable income fell 28%. Stock prices collapsed to one-tenth of their previous value, unemployment went from 1.6 million people to 12.8 million in 1933, which meant 
that one in every four people were unemployed. It was not just the United States that was affected. The entire world economy was on the brink and collapsing. It brought about the rise of strong men in many nations who promised they could fix the problem. There are many theories about what caused the Great Crash, what made it get progressively worse. Many of those theories should probably be labeled myths. But for our purposes, we are not here to debate the cause, but to examine where we stand today, 90 years post-crash. Today, our economic system is under attack. It's being blamed for all sorts of problems, our progressive friends. See problems that I believe are caused by too much intervention, but they think more intervention is the answer. Sometimes these folks fail to realize that capitalism is an economic system, not a political one. Capitalism, or a true free market, gives you what you deserve, not what you want. In a true free market, those who are highly skilled, who work the hardest, get paid the most. Those who are less skilled, who work less, get paid less. Those who can't or won't work don't get paid anything at all, but in our current system, the government taxes and transfers in an effort to level the inequality. Now, here we are 90 years later, headed down a road that Hayek called the road to serfdom. For example, last year, U.S. households received $2.2 trillion in government payouts while those same households paid only $1.7 trillion in income taxes. We don't have to speculate on this stuff. It's not guesswork. We have it straight from the Office of Management and Budget, ROMB. Federal transfer spending is expected to hit a record $3.22 trillion this fiscal year. Those payments will account for 68% of all federal spending, as well as 14.4% of all GDP. Going back to the Great Crash for a moment in 1940, even with FDR's New Deal underway, only 2.2% of GDP was devoted to such payments. These statistics are mind-numbing, I know, but they don't exist in a vacuum. The numbers indicate something's wrong. That is reflected in other numbers up and down the line. They aren't just numbers, though. They represent real people, real families. We have traveled an interesting road since the Great Crash, this road to serfdom that we're on. How did we evolve to this point where the federal government has such a dominant controlling position in our lives, how did we reach the point where so many people depend on the government just to live? How can we expect to continue transferring more than we collect? For example, 50% of all Americans receive at least one federal benefit. 63 million people receive Social Security payments. 60 million receive Medicare. Medicaid is 75 million. Five million households receive federal housing subsidies. Forty million Americans receive food stamps. Are there really 40 million people who can't feed ourselves? Only during the worst part of the Great Crash, 1931 to 36, did government income support exceed taxes paid as they do now. The level is far higher now if we look at the growth figures. For the crash years, 1929 to 1940, we find that the GDP, that's the gross domestic product, folks. It just really means everything that's made for sale in the country. That expanded 
by a cumulative 19.89%. That exceeds our last 11 years of growth by 1% or so. That means that growth-wise, it's worse now. But, of course, the foreign trade sparked by the war in Europe had a lot to do with those growth figures. The growth figures are even more obvious, with crash years growth averaging double figures, while none of our past 11 years exceeded 3%. Those growth figures represent people working, people building things that are being sold to other people. So in summary of these last few mind-numbing statistics, today we draw more from the federal government than we did in the crash years, but far fewer are paying taxes actually to support it. What's the secret that we have now we didn't have then? What keeps all the plates in the air? What is this magic that keeps the House of Cards standing in a word? It's debt, $22 trillion of debt, plus at least $100 trillion of unfunded liabilities, many say. It's at least twice that high if we Americans require such record federal assistance. During a period of expansion and growth and carry such debt loads during good times, what will happen to us when recession inevitably hits? The only answer is for the government and the Fed to open the spigot of spending. Since the tax money's not there, it will have to be in the form of debt, which will result in huge deficits, such as the already almost $1 trillion deficit this fiscal year. So the government proposes to spend $1 trillion more than it takes in this year. But still, we put up with it because we haven't really felt it yet. The Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, which usually underpredicts, tells us to expect a $28 trillion debt by 2029, 10 years from now. That should be 93% of GDP. But if you're not so rosy, you factor in a recession, creating two to three trillion dollar deficits. You can see the debt could run to twice that figure. How will this debt ever be paid? It won't. Not a single penny will ever be paid. In 2018, the interest payment on the debt was a $523 billion record. That's under a supposedly conservative administration. CBO predicts debt service will rise to $915 billion by 2028 which would be nearly <clears throat> nearly 25% of the entire budget. Interest payments in the recession factor debt would swamp the entire budget. What does all this say about us, the American people? Does it say we have gotten what we wanted, what we deserve, or does it say we've been fooled and cheated? One thing that screams out at us is that as Alexander Green says this is the, quote, post-responsibility society we could all use, a dose of reality, a dose of personal responsibility for our own conditions. We're always quick to blame the system, blame the Fed, blame the bankers, income inequality, and so forth for our condition. Blame anyone, anyone but us, because whatever it is, it just can't be our fault. Almost 40% of Americans Today, say they do not have enough money to cover a $400 emergency. I see them in my office every day. I see those who have decided to make up the shortfall between income and lifestyle through credit. All emergencies can also be covered through credit until one day they can't. 
politicians running for office encourage this irresponsibility by constantly telling us, it's not your fault, the government should just pick up the tab. Even the United Nations is down with the cause. UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez warned recently that the global economic outlook is facing severe headwinds and the international community must act quickly to, quote, do everything possible to prevent the world from fracturing, end quote. Mostly due to the U.S. and China trade war, he said. He spoke last week at the World Bank and IMF annual meetings in Washington, D.C. He said he fears a great fracturing of the world in two by the two great superpowers. He told the world's bankers, it's not too late to avoid this fracturing of the world, but we must have a universal economy with universal respect for international law, a multipolar world with strong multipolar institutions, such as the World Bank and the IMF. Yes, well, Mr. Gutierrez, that all sounds so familiar from the UN, but at least he's open about it. Let's break his statement down a little bit into what it really means. The UN wants a world government with the UN at the head and all financed by the UN's favorite banks, the World Bank and the IMF, all with a world currency issued by them. I have a strong feeling we're just about at the point of welcoming the Secretary's ideas into fruition. Back in 2008, when I was a candidate for vice president, I traveled around the country explaining as best I could the bailout that was in progress, the TARP fund for federal government economic intervention. Everyone was screaming, in the Fed, in the Fed, because everyone was against the bailout. I spoke at different in the Fed rallies, including two different ones outside the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. Trillions of dollars of borrowed money created by the Fed were injected into the economy, especially to the failing banks. People saw the scam for what it was, i.e., you bankers play the casino game, and if you win, then you get to keep the money. But if you lose, we will eat the loss for you. That's a pretty foolproof game if you can get it. But the public's revulsion at what the banks were doing, especially the Fed, did inspire them to never let it happen again. The Fed understood our disgust, so now they just don't tell us. They just do it. The Fed poured $750 billion into its lending operation in the past month. That's three-quarters of a trillion dollars in one month. No one's screaming in the Fed. In fact, we can't even convince anyone to audit the Fed. Why should they tell us what they've done with our money? No bankers should ever pay for their risky behavior, their mismanagement. That falls on us. During the time of the Great Crash, the reward for such behavior was bankruptcy. That's the same reward they should get today as well. Finally, folks, this is indeed the post-responsibility age. Nothing bad can never be anyone's fault. The result, however, is rising consumer debt, which is now at more than $4 trillion. The holiday shopping season is right around the corner. Christmas is expected to add another record $143.7 billion to the total of consumer debt. Record spending, record debt, both government and consumer debt, and yet the market is at record levels. People seem very unconcerned about it. The Fed just added fuel to the fire just this week by lowering the bank lending rate 
to 1.5 or 1.75%, why would that be necessary? With unemployment at all-time lows, something weird must be going on, or else officials at the Fed and the federal government might be lying to us. Would they lie to the American people? No one seems to know or care. To the contrary, everyone seems to be celebrating, ignoring the cracks in the foundation. It sounds enough like 90 years ago to be just a little scary, folks. At least that's the way I see it. Till next time, folks, this is Daryl Castle. Thanks for listening.